To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Bloomberg Intelligence Vanguards of Healthcare podcast series, which features leaders at the forefront of change in the healthcare industry. I'm Mark Engelsjord, and I'm a biotech analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house investment research arm of, of Bloomberg. I'm very happy to welcome Bob Connolly, CEO of Elysio Therapeutics, to the podcast. Bob joined Elysio in 2018 having previously served as CEO of several other biotech companies, including Axella Health, Demantis, and Palmatrix. He was also a venture partner at Flagship Pioneering for five years, and over the course of his career has raised over $400 million in financing. Thank you for joining us here today, Bob. Oh, thanks for having me, Mark. So Elysio is a cancer immunotherapy company based up in Boston, which recently made the transition to the public markets and also also rolled out initial cancer vaccine data focused on KRAS-driven tumors at the major U.S. oncology conference, ASCO, last month in Chicago. So we have a lot going on and many aspects to the story we can discuss today. But maybe just to sort of level set for our listeners, if you could just explain what cancer vaccines are, I think Many people are familiar with vaccines in the context of COVID-19 or influenza, but maybe less so in the setting of cancer. Yeah, that, that is a great question and something that people often get confused by. It might be better to think of it almost as like a cancer therapeutic vaccine, because the way cancer vaccines are applied today is they are they're given when someone has cancer. So they're given to treat the cancer um, and hopefully educate the, with a, treat the cancer with a strong immune response and hopefully educate the immune response that if the cancer reappears, that it will be prevented. So if you, that's kind of the vaccine, the kind of classic vaccine element of it are the prevention piece, which comes later and the immune response piece, which is a critical part of the efficacy. Does that make sense? That, that does. That's perfect. And, you know, I think if people have been following this space, they're probably aware that, you know, cancer vaccines as a concept or as a uh, therapeutic modality have, I think it's fair to say, had some ups and downs. Um, I would be curious to hear your take on how the field has progressed, and then, you know, sort of how you see Elysio contributing. Yeah, that's definitely true. Definitely true. And um, 
I mean, it was a challenge that I knew coming in and taking on the CEO position about five years ago that cancer vaccines had once, I don't know, I mean, maybe 10 years ago, been considered just a, a real exciting breakthrough area that there was, you know, lots of money being poured into. And the results of that were not at all uh, what people had hoped for. There's a, a number of, um, you know, Provenge might be one drug that people remember, or one vaccine that people remember pretty quickly because it did make it to the market, but just with much less uh, effect and reach than people had. But there were many other, or people that had expected, but there were many other cancer vaccines that just never made it to the market. And typically, if you, I mean, there's there's a, probably a good list of reasons why they didn't, but in pretty much every case, there was a common reason, and that is that they just did not have, pack enough of, of a immune response punch uh, to have the effects and the and the durability of effects that they needed. So where we come in is that well, let me kind of go back to the start here. Our founder, Daryl Irvin, is uh, from the Koch Institute uh, at uh, MIT. And Daryl has spent pretty close to two decades trying to figure this problem out. How do you make better vaccines? How do you, how do you get the, the immune response to be powerful enough to you know, kill a cancer uh, or prevent an infectious disease and then treat the immune response to make sure that it never comes back? And uh, as he, Daryl is kind of an unusual uh, breed of cat because he brings together in his lab material sciences, uh, chemistry, immunology, uh, oncology, infectious disease, which is kind of a um, unique group of uh, sciences and knowledge to bring into one place. And as they were working on it, they identified that another common part to all of these vaccines and now even with cell therapies that are being developed is very little engagement of the lymph nodes. And if you uh, sat and had a presentation from us, you'd hear lymph node over and over and over again. And because the lymph nodes are where the key immune cells and specifically T cells are located, it's, it's, it's where they're created um, it's, it's where they're uh, differentiated, you know, basically given their orders, told where to go, and told how hard to hit. And it's very difficult. It's, it, so this is not something that's kind of new, uh, you know, that was a new discovery. It's something that people have known for a long time. It's just very difficult to get any kind of immunogenic payload to the lymph nodes and into the lymph nodes where antigen presenting cells can present them, you know, to T cells. And so a lot of Daryl's work uh, was directed at solving that problem. And he developed a number of different technologies, uh, which we licensed in. So this company was started in 2011 with one of the earlier versions of Daryl's technology for lymph node targeting. And then he, uh, brought forward a, a, uh, what, a much more advanced technology, which we call Amphifile. And you'll hear me refer to it as AMP throughout the technology. But what the Amphifile technology does is very precisely traffic a range of different types of 
of uh, you know uh, immunogenic cargo cargos antigens um, nucleic acids directly to the lymph nodes very precisely to the lymph nodes where uh, they are uh, taken up by antigen presenting cells and all the magic that happens in the lymph nodes takes place um, one of my key my chief medical officer refers to the uh, lymph nodes as a schoolhouse for T cells and particularly as it relates to cancer if you're going to be able to kill a cancer uh, you've got to be able to generate T cells and they have to be potent there has to be a high magnitude of them. They've got to be functional and uh, they need to have durability because you don't want to, uh, you don't want the cancer to come back. So that's where we come in. Yeah. So it really does sound like it's a platform approach. I mean, we can talk about some of the initial clinical data uh, that were presented at ASCO uh, last month as it relates to KRAS mutant tumors, but um, is it safe to say this is a, a platform approach that could be amenable to uh, any number of, of antigens or, or tumor absolutely. subsets? Yeah, absolutely. And not only, you know, what specific antigens, but delivering multiple, like our, our KRAS program has seven peptides in it. So we hit seven mutations, but even outside of cancer or, or well, inside cancer, We've shown that and published work that combining the AMP platform with cell therapies like CAR-T, TCRT, uh, can uh, have a very significant impact on their ability to be effective with solid tumors. And Daryl, uh, as well as Alicio, has done a lot, a lot of work demonstrating this technology in infectious diseases. So if you can get uh, both the strong antibody response you need, but also the T cell response you need, which again uh, carries the memory factor with it. Uh, there's absolutely applications outside of uh, cancer. We we have to focus, so we're very focused on cancer vaccines, um, but uh, and the other areas of application of the platform. We hope to be able to uh, and are working with other parties on, and that can be academic parties. Uh, it can be other pharmas, other biotechs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I'm probably grossly oversimplifying, but it sounds, I mean, my understanding is that uh, the ability to target antigens preferentially to the lymph nodes comes from essentially linking them to albumin, which is one of the more common uh, proteins. Um, I mean, if I have that correct, that sounds like a a very elegant um, solution that apparently uh, hasn't been tried before. I mean, is that uh, is that a fair assessment? I think yeah, it's funny because I had the same reaction. What, you know that boy, this this sounds really simple and almost too good to be true. But uh, it took about ten years to be able to develop that technology uh, where you could hitchhike on the endogenous albumin that is constantly circulating through the lymphatic system and moving from lymph node to lymph node. So the actual development of amphiphile where you have a lymph or um, a lipid mm -hmm. that is designed to preferentially bind to uh, albumin and then has a linker connected to it, which is then connected to the, the immunogenic payload 
And all of that is protected, that payload, the linker, as it moves through the lymphatic system. Um, it's, it's a lot more complex than it sounds, mm-hmm. but it, but, uh, and it took quite a while, you know, for it to be developed, but it is incredibly effective and it's very widely published how effective it is both by, uh, Daryl's been very prolific in terms of publishing, but we have as well. So mm-hmm. it is simple. It's elegant. It also has some major manufacturing advantages, um, you know, and cost of goods advantages, so the, these are all things I'm, I'm a non-scientist, though I've spent my whole career in this world. And this was something that was easy for me to understand, um, having spent most of my time in immunology. Uh, and and uh, but it it took a long time to get here mm-hmm. put it that way. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about your lead program, ELI002, which is focused on KRAS. Um, mutations and KRAS, you know, um, is clearly uh, having a moment with um, some small molecule commercial products from both Amgen and Marathi. And, you know, this has long been considered a quote unquote undruggable yeah. uh, target. Um, so, what, you know, what did we learn uh, from the initial clinical data at ASCO? And, you know, just maybe tell us a little bit more about. Uh, Alicio's vision uh, for the KRAS program. Yeah, so th- so this is it, your mention of Target of uh, Marathi and Amgen is interesting because when I started with the company, you know, there was a negative vibe about cancer vaccines, uh, and we wanted to go into KRAS, and everybody thought KRAS was undruggable at that time. And then Amgen and Karate and Marathi came forward and showed that it was druggable, uh, which you know was was great for us to see. Um, what we've taken is the approach, an immune, resp- you know, a, a vaccine approach to it. And we've developed a, uh, we developed a vaccine that um, uh, is, has seven peptides in it. It's designed to address the, the KRS mutations that, dr- that drive 25% of all solid tumors, almost 100% of pancreatic, 50% of ca- colorectal, 25% alone. I mean, it is really just a nasty, uh, nasty disease. And so what we uh, have shown with uh, in the interim data of our first clinical trial is uh, just a massive response rate. And so we're in patients in the adjuvant stage. So these are, these are patients that were treated with chemotherapy. Um, they were not metastatic when they were you know, when, when they were found, they're treated with chemotherapy, they're treated with, and then surgery. So the chemotherapy shrinks the tumor, surgery tries to remove it or get as much of it as they can. But the patients that are in the trial have minimal residual disease. So either through biomarkers or ctDNA, it's clear that the, you know, that the chemo and the surgery didn't get all the cancer out and that these patients will wrap, relapse very, very quickly. In fact, in the case of pancreatic cancer, they'll relapse in, in an average of six to seven months. Um, colorectal is a little bit longer, maybe 11 to 12 months. And once they relapse, there's really not a whole lot you can do uh, for them other than observation. Some will go into other experimental trials or, or take another round of chemo, but chemo uh, is very limited in its effect after uh, you know, in a second, in a second, um, 
shot at the cancer. So what we showed is really unprecedented data. And I want to I highlight that this is as a monotherapy. We did not do this with checkpoint inhibition or, or with a chemotherapy to follow, which is what typically other vaccines have tried. We were in, went into pancreatic cancer, which is, you know, as you know, is, is, uh, is just a brutal disease. Um, and what we were able to show, so we, we have 25 patients in the trial. Um, 20% of them are, um, are pancreatic cancer. The other 5% are colorectal cancer. And we saw that uh, 77% of the patients responded um, and in, uh, in, in uh, tumor marker bio, uh, or I'm sorry, t- uh, tumor marker reductions, biomarker reductions. Um, and that one third of those patients had a complete response. So their, you know, ctDNA was completely uh, eliminated versus the baseline level we took before they started the vaccine. And the clear driver of that is the T-cell response. So 87% of the patients in this trial had a T-cell response and the average fold increased T-cell response versus baseline before they were treated um, with our vaccine was is 56 times. So these are really massive increases in T cells. Uh, they're clearly having an impact on the tumor. It was shown to be very, very safe. There were no um, uh, dose related toxicities. We were able to actually go two cohorts higher than we expected because of, of what we were seeing on the safety side. And we were able to come out of it with our recommended phase two dose. So that was interim data. Uh, it didn't include three patients from the highest cohort. Um, it, it is, and it w- is a study that will continue to read out uh, markers like relapse-free survival and overall survival, which we'll have more data on in the second half of this year. So, so then going into the study, my, uh, you know, my chief scientific officer, chief medical officer, were kind of doing their best to just say, you know, to kind of, you know, I don't know, not dampen my expectations, but to say, you know, uh, what we see in animals isn't always replicated in, in people, in patients. But this, this was a, not only an unprecedented response in the industry, but this exceeded what we, what we had seen in, in, uh, in preclinical studies. So this was just, you know, exciting as hell. Eighty-seven percent of these patients see, you know, having uh, T cell responses. Um, you know, you just you're just not seeing that kind of thing, particularly with a with a monotherapy. Yeah, very impressive. Um, and maybe a, a bit of an unfair question, given as you just explained, this was the initial human data. But you know, as you 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 reference phase two, and you know, as you think about the the path of this program toward a potential uh, marketing approval, um, you know, sort of what what additional questions need to be answered. Um, it, I mean, and then I guess looking further ahead, do you see this being developed for patients with uh, potentially with metastatic disease? Um, do you envision the potential for using this even earlier? Um, Maybe even as a preventative for certain high-risk patients? What, what's the potential here? Well, the preventative is, is kind of the holy grail. Uh, and that, that is certainly something that we, we have in our mind. But in terms of 
uh, short term, uh, there's a number of, we need to get into randomized controlled studies. These are open label studies. We have another study going on now with the expanded version of this, which has, uh, which has more peptide or more mutation coverage. Um, that is the, that's the formulation that we'll take forward into uh, the later stage trials. So, th so th really there's, there's kind of a couple of key questions here. Um, the durability of the response is a big one. Um, uh, and, and we're going to see that from the trial that we're in now, but we'll continue to see or the two trials that we're in now. And we'll see that, you know, we'll continue to report on that throughout this year uh, and, and into next and next year as well. You know, we're going to continue to follow these patients for, for two years. Um, and then we'll look at this also in conjunction with checkpoint inhibition. Now, we were able to generate this data without checkpoint inhibition. And checkpoint inhibition on its own has not been successful in, uh, in pancreatic cancer. But uh, we've had patients that have, uh, have come off this study and gone into experimental studies with checkpoint, and they've gone into complete remission. So for us, uh, there's a couple of key questions that we want to answer um, is the, is the, the broader peptide seven peptide approach, which we're testing now in a second trial, is that, is that safe? And is it showing the same kind of responses that we saw with, uh, you know, in the first, on first phase one, uh, the durability of the response from both of these trials, and then looking at this, comparing a monotherapy to com uh, combining with checkpoint. And then from there, uh, and all that is, work that will be done in the next nine to, you know, nine months approximately. And then the goal there is to enter into a phase two, three trial. And at that point, we will know whether or not that, how many arms that trial has. Does it have a monotherapy arm and a monotherapy, you know, and a checkpoint, you know, combination arm? Um, and then, you know, it'll be, there'll be a control group. It'll be randomized. And uh, it, you know, we're hoping that it has an opportunity, particularly with kind of a seamless move from phase two to three to be a registration study. But in the next year, you know, those are the key things. What kind of durability are we seeing of this response in these first couple of trials? And does Checkpoint take greater advantage of the type of T-cell responses that we're having um, and, and lead to even greater effect? Uh, in, in pancreatic and colorectal, which are the two we're really going to focus on in the next year. But I really see us taking the, the, uh, the controlled, randomized controlled studies uh, first down the pancreatic path. Yep, that makes sense. So apart from the KRAS program, I mean, the other big uh, recent milestone at Elysio is that you're now publicly traded company. Um, I alluded to that earlier. So you executed a reverse merger with Angion Biomedica. Uh, mm -hmm. Love to hear a little bit more about that, what that process was like. Um, I, I, I understand anecdotally that can be a fairly competitive uh, process these days. Um, yeah, right. How did that go? Well, uh, what, let me start with your last statement because it, it, it has really since the middle of 2021, mm -hmm. you know, we've been in a, in a, you know, a nuclear winter 
in bio in the biotech financing world. Right. I, mean, I think what in the last 12 months, there's been maybe nine IPOs, something like that. And I'm over half of them are probably trade. Uh, I think are trading down from their IPO level. So it's very difficult, uh, both in the private market as well as in, um, you know, to, uh, to raise money and to, and to go public. We have also a, a, a uniqueness about our company in that it, in that it's, it hasn't been funded in a traditional way We've, from the very beginning of the company. Uh, it's, it's been funded by very high net worth individuals, uh, uh, less pro- higher profile um, uh, strategic funds and, and, and smaller funds. So every other company I've run has had a small syndicate of well-known biotech investors. Uh, and that's not what we've had. And, uh, and then when you, can, you throw in the challenges of people still waking up to the potential for vaccine, mm-hmm. uh, cancer vaccines, um, you know, fundraising for us uh, hasn't, has, this has been probably the hardest company this, uh, I've had to raise money for, despite the fact that it's the company that has the most potential of any company that I work for. So what we wanted to do with the IPO market really shut down, um, we wanted to be able to find a way to access public company investors um, who typically bring more to the table. There's more different ways to get at them, pipes, uh, registered directs, uh, confidential, you know, marketed uh, uh, public offerings. There's a lot more ways to raise money as a public company and a lot more people to go to there. And so we looked at a number of reverse mergers, but because of the difficulty in raising money in the private market, uh, which I would argue was harder than in the public market, um, th- there was a ton of, there's a ton of competition for these, mm-hmm. for these reverse mergers. And right. uh, I, I believe in the case of Angion, they had somewhere around 60 bids. Wow. So, uh, and then, I mean, it's a hell of a lot of work on their part. Yeah. And, and they have to narrow that down. I mean, they, the company, the key people in the company that are running the process have to assess all these companies, typically meet with them at least once, and they start knocking that number down to probably something, you know, in the low teens or even, even lower that they get their consultants and their board uh, involved in to hear more about. And then you typically go to a, uh, you know, maybe a a top three. And on those three, you do, you do, you do heavy diligence. This is essentially M&A. So you're doing, you know, really significant diligence. Um, And we, in this case, uh, Angion was represented by Oppenheimer, who we happen to know very, very well. And we had an update with Oppenheimer and shared with them some of the uh, clinical data that we had under confidentiality. And this was actually, you know, after three cohorts, we still had two more cohorts to go. But they were impressed enough by the data and the progress that we made that they said, you know, we have, are you interested in a reverse merger? And uh, yes, we are. And we have a company that is down to really its last four or five, but if you're willing, we could get you in front of them uh, and their board. Um, it may be a little too a little too late, but it's worth a shot. And mm-hmm. so we said, "Yeah, let's do it." And that was in you know early November, 
Uh, that led to a couple of other meetings, meetings uh, that went much deeper uh, that where where KOLs were brought in on their side and they were, you know, they were getting expert uh, consulting. And then uh, we we moved to the, you know, the, the pole position and then started both continuing on one side to do really deep diligence while on the other side. Uh, the uh, CEO and I began to negotiate terms and we got to a term sheet right before Christmas. So, which is pretty remarkably fast. So it was almost, it was about a two month process from the initial meeting to where we had a term sheet. And then we wanted to try to get uh, the merger agreement out uh, done by a month later which uh, every, you know, all the attorneys involved said that these things typically take at least two months. We were able to do it mm-hmm. in a month and then uh, moved on to the S4 and then all the things involved in that responding to the SEC. And while internally preparing to be a pubco versus, a, you know, a private company. And so from beginning to end, um, that's about an eight, eight uh, seven month process which um, is probably a little bit faster than most of these reverse mergers go. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Angion, I think one of the things that work great right here is we've looked at other reverse mergers in the past, but they have a lot of them have complications to them. They have technology that they want you to advance or they have a product that uh, they would like to have you dedicate some of the funding to. And we weren't willing to look at any of those. We were just simply looking for a company that recognized the value of what we had, brought cash to the table. So this is you know a financing event, and there's 30 million that we were able to get out of it, and that was was listed uh, on Nasdaq, and we and could bring on to our board people that brought experience that we didn't necessarily have on our board. And Anjan was check, check, check. And we worked really well together. And, and so here we are. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that transaction. Sounds like it was um, a lot of work, but uh, ultimately worth it. Yeah, I think this was, without a doubt, the last seven months have been, and now I'd actually extend it to these last two months because, uh, uh, you know, we're still doing all the transitions and uh, while we're also out there trying to introduce people to the company and um, and there was a lot of work leading up to ASCO. And as I mentioned, we have two ongoing trials. So it's been an intense seven, eight years. Yeah. So I seven, eight months, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> months that seem like years. Yeah. So uh, Elysio is based in Boston. And for those of you mm-hmm. that know Boston, I believe specifically in the seaport area, which um, didn't used to really exist in its current incarnation. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, what is that like? What's the sort of mood in the the Boston biotech scene these days? Well, I I mean, the seaport, with our move to the seaport has just been great. And uh, for lots of reasons. One is that we really were, um, I mean, Kendall Square, uh, Cambridge, was filling up, you know, I mean, you got all, you had all the major pharmas in there. Now the, a lot of the VCs have created incubators there and 
uh, it was, we just didn't see a way for us to continue to grow the company. And also it, it, you know, it's much, it's expensive. It's expensive to be there. It's expensive to be anywhere in Boston, but Kendall Square is, is, you know, and, and Cambridge is in particular. So we started looking at other, let's just call them suburbs of Boston versus suburbs of, uh, of, of, uh, uh, you know, kind of suburbs of, of Boston more so than suburbs of Cambridge uh, and could see that there were biotech clusters popping up in the seaport area. Um, there's right now major building going on in Alston, uh, which is right by Harvard, um, Watertown, uh, you know, and then a lot going on, you know, on the outer rim uh, out outside of Boston. But we looked at, uh, the areas that were closer to the city, closer to Cambridge, uh, and really loved the seaport. And, and the seaport is just, you know, there's biotechs popping up all over. I mean, the building we're in is an eight-story building that used to be a complete office building. And I haven't checked recently, but I think it's about 50% biotech now. And, you know, you and now you see the different types of businesses that support bi biotechs like animal facilities, vivariums are popping up around these different cl uh, clusters. So it's, uh, you know, Boston, Cambridge, you know, the Boston area is clearly the biotech, you know, capital of the world. When I first got started in this, there's a big, you know, Cambridge or San Francisco was big. The other Cambridge in England was big. In fact, my first company was based there. Um, and there were lots of areas around the country that were trying to create um, hubs. But Boston has just now become, the Boston area has just become so dominant in the biotech space. Fenway is another area that's growing up. And uh, very easy access to the airport from the seaport. That's always a key attribute. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe just a final question for you, Bob. I'm always, I always like to ask companies about their name. And um, <laughs> I, I love the name Elysio, but I, I'd be curious to know if, if there's a story behind it. There is. Um, so when I came to the company in 2018, um, I will tell you that somebody once told me that whenever a CEO takes over an existing company, the first thing they do is change the name. <laughs> <laughs> but that is not what, 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 uh, what was behind this. So when I came in, the company had been uh, around for, I think, about six years and was called Vedantra. And I was very familiar with a more advanced company called Vedanta. And uh, that was a micro, micro that is a microbiome company. And I even had, uh, you know, LinkedIn congratulations for people for taking over as CEO of Vedanta. <laughs> so, so there was a, um, so there was a, you know, and sooner or later, Vedanta was going to see Vedantra and, you know, we're, we were going to get a call or a letter. That's what I assumed. Right. And, and we were also, really at that point at a time where we were really committing to amphiphile we were really committing to cancer and to kras and uh as as a total focus of the company so he said let's uh you know let's find a name that's that you know that works with that 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 we like the way it sounds that's memorable 
So I happen to have a very close family friend who is the president of the creative group at the Brand Institute. Um, and I think they're probably the most prolific namer of companies. And, and uh, I think they named several of the COVID vaccines. And uh, so I called up Scott and said, hey, Scott, you know, I want to change the company uh, name. Here's some thoughts on what we'd like to see. Uh, do you have any time on the weekend to do this? And he put his whole creative team on it and came back. Initially, they came up with 300 asked us to pull the ones out of it to try to pull like 30 out of it that we really liked. And they always had the one that they liked the best, but they did. And it was Elysio, but they didn't want to tell us. Uh, and so we narrowed it down to, I don't know, you know, 30, then to 10. And then it was, you know, tell us which ones you like and rank order them. And we had Elysio at the top and Elysio as I understand, it comes from Latin uh, with a meaning of to elicit a response. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're all about, to elicit, to use the lymph nodes to elicit a response. And the fact that it had IO at, on the end of it, you know, immuno-oncology was just the icing on the cake. So it was a big assist from the brand institute, who now we're working on to name, you know, ELIO2. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's, that's yeah. the story of uh the name i love it well i i i like the sound of it and um but now that i know the background i i like it even more well listen bob i really enjoyed our conversation today wanted to thank you again uh, for being part of vanguards of healthcare and sharing your insights about elicio uh, the field of cancer vaccines and and the biotech sector in general and and we'll stay tuned and we'll very much be looking forward to uh, to more data from, from your program. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.